the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 970 presents Eye on Real Estate. This is your premier source for real estate information. From the hot properties in the tri-state to the latest in real estate market trends. From mortgage news to answers to all of your real estate questions, you'll be in the know with help from the experts. Call now, 866-970-9622. 866-970-9622. Now, here's your host for Eye on Real Estate, Douglas Elliman's CEO, Dottie Herman. We're back. And again, I'm Dottie Herman, and I'm here with Ace Wattatusparp, our financial expert, and Stephen Gaines, who is a, a bestseller and big author. Uh, he's just got his hands on everything, uh, brilliant, and also knows a whole lot about real estate. And of course, as I promised, I am so thrilled to have this man on the show, Don Peebles, who is a real estate entrepreneur, author, philanthropist, a political activist. He is the founder and chairman of the Peebles Corporation, a real estate development company with $8 billion worth of assets from Miami to New York, much of which he developed through what he calls affirmative development. And I consider him a friend also, and I'm just privileged that you're here. Good. I don't know if it's good morning or good afternoon. (laughs) Don, how are you? Good. Daddy, how are you? I'm good. And thank you so much for for being part of the show. We we really, I mean, I think you're such an expert in everything. And I just thank you so much. And we've are we we've telling all our guests all week to uh, look for you to be here. So, Don, would you yes. talk a little about, I mean, you should talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. But maybe you could tell our listeners and at 866-970-962, and you can email or text us or do whatever, or get to us however you want to. Um, can you explain to our listeners what affirmative development is? Yes, affirmative development is a, an approach that our company has engaged in for many decades. As we all know, women and minorities tend to be underrepresented in, in every major industry especially our industry, real estate, which, of course, you're a pioneer um, in uh, breaking barriers. And so what what that is is to make sure that our development projects, wherever they are developed around the country, that the economic opportunities and the career opportunities are reflective of the demographics of the population. So the company we have over the past two and a half decades um, had over 25% of all of our business, all of our contracts and uh, vendors were women-owned and minority-owned businesses, and now we've stepped that up to 35%. Wow. And so we want to make sure that our development reflect the demographics of the population. Now, Don, you were way ahead of your times because, you know, right now it's starting to be kind of a movement that people are trying to start to be aware of. But you were on this many years ago. Could you... First of all, tell people a little about you. I mean, I, 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 I know, I mean, how, 
how you really have changed. I mean, you've been really an activist and changing a lot of things well before it was popular to do that. <laughs> Don, you were, yeah, you were, forgive me for interjecting, but it's Steve Gates, Don. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Good. Hi. So you you were born in in Washington D.C. and you were a congressional page. I was. Yes, I was born in Washington D.C. of the congressional page. I spent my last two years of high school uh, working on Capitol Hill in the Congress and going to school in the Library of Congress. So I had a full day, but I got exposed obviously to a political environment, um, and that of course shaped a lot of you know, kind of my approach to business. Also, I was born in 1960, so I grew up during the civil rights and the women's movement in right. terms of women equality. And I also lived it firsthand. My mother, um, who raised me, um, it was as an African, was an African-American woman who got into real estate and had her own brokerage business and uh, worked in uh, corporate America at Fannie Mae. And so I saw the challenges that she had to confront both in the private sector and as an entrepreneur and also in the corporate world of getting equal pay and equal economic opportunities. And so that shaped me. And that's a big part of why um, I've been very sensitive to this issue and these challenges from day one, uh, because I do believe that we are, of course, the greatness of our country is that we are an open society that's built on a, you know, a foundation of fairness. And so when we have I mean, more than half the population being female, and yet we look at how challenging it is for them to get a fair chance. I mean, I just, I lived it as a child and saw my mother live it. And so of course I'm very sensitive to it. And so I made a commitment to myself as a young boy and a teenager that when I was in a position to um, set some guidelines that I would make them more fair. And so that's really what I've done. And it's kind of, it's a natural thing for us because I'm, I mean, I was, I, you know, I was born with that um, experience. And you're passionate about it. Uh, and it's not like, you know, you see now, and I and I see it myself, a lot of people kind of just kind of saying, well, this is we movement now, and me, like, well, now, you know, they're all of a sudden being, oh, well, maybe we should hire some more women. But you have always really, for women and minorities, have always been on it. You were ahead of your time, and it wasn't, it was your passion to do that. And, um, yeah, but Don, it's not about being trendy or this is the thing that's in now. This is something that's really uh, been uh, dear to his heart since I met him years ago in Miami. You know, it really has been a driving principle to him. It has nothing to do with what's fashionable. Is that? I, I guess that's that's pretty much sums it up, Don, don't you think? Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the challenge today is that, um, uh, you know, most you know, business is very efficient. And especially say in a market like New York, it's highly competitive, very efficient. The financial industry is very efficient. So they look to go to the most efficient way to transact business. And so that means going to those who've been established, tried and true, and those who have greater resources. And so because of the historic um, impediments to minorities and women, um, that is, they're not going to be reflected in that um, group of uh, businesses and parties where, you know, the industries want to do business with because it's, it, it requires a little bit more effort. And unfortunately, that thinking has perpetuated, you know, throughout our society for many, many decades. And so slowing that down requires more of a personal commitment. I think, though, that business has changed and is changing very rapidly. And so the population is not going to stand for this imbalance anymore. And so we're going to see this new generation of millennials and general generation X's and so forth, where they are going to be concerned 
about how something's built or how something's produced or who's producing it as much as what it is. And, and so therefore they're going to pay attention to these things and women are no longer going to accept doing business or, or consuming products that are produced um, by people that don't, or companies that don't give them a fair opportunity. So I think we have a much more conscious society. So I'm hopeful that that will bring about greater change. And as we get more women into major senior positions and companies and also more entrepreneurs, they will be more sensitive to it, as will other minorities when they when we see more representation there. Right. I think, you know, we'll and get, get them on some you know, boards. Closer to where it should be. Yeah, get them get the women on on some boards because there's very few women on boards. And uh, I was at some conference. I was speaking at something done, and there was venture capital people there. And I, I think, and I'm not quite sure if the number was 88 or something close to that. But the venture capital money, really, most of it goes to men. Uh, yeah, in fact, in fact, it's actually a venture capital uh, money. I was I was with uh, Jean Case, um, who her, and her husband was uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, CEOs and chairman of AOL, Time Warner, and she just published a book. And she said that the, the statistics are the venture uh, of the venture capital dollars over ninety five percent, or less than five percent, go to women, and less then 2% go to minorities and less than 1% go to African-Americans. So, so that explains why you have, one, a lot of these challenges, and two, why people are very frustrated right now. And I, 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 and I so like I'm working with some women who are trying to like put some funds together to, to at least try to help uh, minorities and women who really had no chance of getting money, okay, from... Uh, the, the you know venture capital people. Uh, so I uh, we're we're you know and I always tell people, listen, maybe you can't change the world, but you can get involved in the in, in the way people have to have a voice too and have to be involved. And you know we can. Yeah, those play. figures that that Don just mentioned that they they hurt. Uh, that that hurts me to hear. I can't believe how terrible that venture capitalists only one percent of African Americans can get venture. You know, are part of the venture capitalist world. That's that's terrible. It's really shocking to me. Well, that's yeah. why people have to be more aware of it. Now, when I was speaking at this conference, which was for women, and. Uh, and minorities, I was speaking, and a woman came up and talked about opportunity zones. And this was about a year or so ago, and I really wasn't familiar with it at the time, and I think there was kind of, it wasn't really in place exactly yet. Uh, and I kind of had a, a, a hard time getting my arms around it at first. Can you explain to our listeners um, what opportunity zones are and how that's, you know, and I think it's a win-win, but would you explain about opportunity zones to our listeners? Absolutely. So they are patterned after the enterprise zones that were created in the early 1990s as a result of the SNL and banking crises. And so there were enterprise zones created to stimulate investment in areas, urban areas by and large, uh, that needed economic development, and they offered tax incentives. So the enterprise zones basically uh, said anyone who invest money in um, those enterprise zones in real estate, for example, that all the value appreciation that resulted from those investments would be free from taxes. So there'd be zero capital gains up to a 20-year hold period. So 
Wow. The Opportunity Zones um, have uh, taken certain census tracts around the country. All those tracts are um, uh, were, were designated by the governors and um, of the states, and 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 in some instances the mayor of the state, but by and large the governors of the state. And so it. So the Opportunity Zone, say, for example, one of them is in Long Island City, um, New York, where Amazon is going. So what those Opportunity Zones provide for is that any investor or any individual or, um, or, or taxpayer companies as well that have a capital gain event, that means they can sell, uh, they've had an asset longer than one year and that they are selling it. It can be real estate, it can be a boat, it can be art. It can be stock, which is what it was geared towards a lot of the tech company um, stockholders who want to diversify um, their stock portfolios. You know, many people who were founders or early employees of tech companies. And they can take the gain, either all of it or a portion of the gain, and they can invest it in a opportunity zone fund that will create economic development by investing in the redevelopment of the, uh, properties within that zone. And, and, that, um, uh, de- and then that development or that um, investment would be free of capital gain taxes if they held that to hold for between seven and 10 years. And then whenever they sold it, it's free of any capital gain. And that's amazing that's money that, yeah, and the money that they put in um, would be get a reduction in the capital gains rate as long as they left it deployed for, I believe, five years. So if you um, capital gains rates are 20 percent right now. So the, the rate, the tax rate would drop down on that money to 15 percent. And so but there's a window of investment um, time period. It's about 18 months left to where the, the investors can make that make that election. And then the and, and, and invest it into a fund, and then the fund has a window of time to invest that capital. Um, and so it's supposed to be a essentially a one-time or a um, kickstart of economic development in these zones. Um, and and isn't so, it, isn't John? Isn't it true that part of that the part of the the plus is that you have to put your, you can't just put your money in and take it out. It's got to be there ten years, and they're going to train. I was told that part of it is that they're going to train the people that live in that area also for a lot of the jobs. Um, and really, by taking and putting a good infrastructure in, you know, with hotels, because everything is infrastructure, you are going to turn around an area and the people that live in it. And um, I think that's a whole run. I, for, I think it's a win-win for everyone. At least that's how I feel. But, yeah, I think it, it's a positive thing. Now, I don't think it's going to be as a, as effective as as people are or some people are thinking, um, and because it's such a short window. The other thing is that yeah, I was going to ask you, um, why are they making it such a short window? Because I don't think the government could afford to do it in perpetuity. I mean, it would Got be. It. I mean, they're looking to get. They're looking to take money that's being held in stocks and other assets right now and get um, uh, those owners to sell them and give them a vehicle to reduce their taxes if they do it now. And that's just that's to stimulate more economic activity, which is a smart thing. It will keep the economy expanding, you know, as it is right now. 
Uh, the challenge, I think uh, one of the other challenges, because we looked at doing an opportunity zone fund ourselves, and uh, one of the challenges there is how do you take the people who live and have businesses in all of these zones around the country, but they tend to be minority and, and small uh, women-owned businesses. Right. And so how do you get them um, access to that capital? Because that's another form of venture capital, because the investors take their money they put it into a fund. It can't go directly into the investment. It has to go into a fund. And then that opportunity zone fund invests the money. So how do you make a mandate so that that fund will invest in, in and provide uh, venture capital to women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses? And so that's one of the challenges. So we were looking at doing that ourselves. We're, we're exploring right now a emerging developer's fund, which would be um, emerging developers, meaning just what the word emerging means, but disproportionately women-owned um, developers and, and minority developers and first-time developers. So you're saying that as of now, the fund probably is going to attract people that have already have a decent amount of money in the stock market already, and then they might, you know... Uh, and, the, and then the businesses that go in, well, maybe they're not going to take a chance on somebody that doesn't have a track record yet or is very small. Is that what you're basically saying? So you want? Well, I think they're going to because there's a short window of investment opportunity. They're going to be looking for big projects. Right. Now, also, you know, a company like Amazon who moved into an opportunity zone, they, the revenue there there are other incentives that are in those zones, and so profits and revenue generated in those zones get favorable tax treatment, including zero taxes in some instances. And they get other incentives for job generation um, in those zones as well, which is a very good thing because it's going to encourage businesses to locate there as well. And that's one of the reasons that the state of New York was effective in getting Amazon to Long Island City because New York is a very expensive place to do business exactly. in. And so, so to get Amazon to bring 25,000 employees to Long Island City um, that um, was a tremendous impact. So, but, you know, a lot of people, by the time they find out about it, it's going to be too late. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people who don't even know about it. Because no, a lot of people, a lot of people don't. This is a, I mean, this was spearheaded in part by Sean Parker, um, who you know was one of the early um, investors and officers at Facebook, and so the tech business, the tech entrepreneurs who are more socially conscious, want to free up some of their capital, and so, I mean by selling some stock, but not paying taxes or as much taxes on it, and um, and then doing something good with their money. So I, that's a big part of this. So the opportunity zones, the the economics, in terms of investing in them is not overwhelmingly better to make someone go into a community and make a, a more risky investment. It just takes where they're, these, good, they're, where they're, these districts where their investments are compelling to begin with, this extra you know, benefit of, of zero taxes helps drive the return higher to attract more money there. I think the better element here and the one that we people should focus more on is by moving your business or starting a business in those zones, you get very favorable taxes. John, really, that's very important because for most people, 
They're not, they don't even know about it by the time they figure it out. That's, but that's really important. We have to take a quick break. We're here with Don Peoples, and this is really great information about Opportunity Zones and maybe how you can benefit or get involved with it. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back, and Don's going to talk about how maybe smaller business can get involved with it. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. We're back. You're listening to I on Real Estate. I'm Dottie Herman, and we're just privileged to be talking to Don Peebles, who's a real estate entrepreneur, author, philanthropist. I think he's a political activist, but I think he's a genius also. And we're talking about opportunity zones and that whole situation and how maybe some smaller businesses can get involved. And before I do that, I want to tell you, Don, that Ace, <laughs> who I believe is a genius, I, I will tell you, I, I don't say that about many people. Mm-hmm. I think he is, you're going to see his name. Uh, uh, you're going to see his name out there. It's big already, and he's like 30-something years old. And I just, when I met him, I just knew. Uh, he follows you. He goes, oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to talk to him. He follows you. Yeah, on, I first uh, saw Don on CNBC um, in 2017. He was talking about Facebook um, in regards to Snapchat. And, you know, I just think you're, I mean, I'm a huge fan, Don. So <laughs> thank you for all the knowledge that, thank that, you. that you give to, to the public. So Yeah, and that's why Ace is where he is because he's 33 or 34 and he – really follows and learns and learns and learns. It's never too... That's always something you should be doing. Okay, so, Don, before the break, we were talking about what you think people can do or small businesses can do to get involved with these opportunity zones. How do you know which is an opportunity zone, Don? How do you you, uh, find out where there is one? Stephen, that's a great question. Basically, you go online, you could search. The federal government um, has published um, a map of the U.S. where the zones are. So, you, uh, so someone goes online, they go to the federal government website for Opportunity Zones, and and I think they're I think it's in the Department of Treasury and uh, the Commerce Department um, sites, and then they'll you'll see the various census tracts where they're located and then you can look up those census tracts to get the actual physical boundaries you know by street essentially and uh uh you know go from there say for example long island city the entire part of long island city city is not an opportunity zone so it wouldn't it's not unusual that one side of the street is an opportunity zone and the other is not uh, because they're geared based upon census tracts well would you think that amazon uh Obviously, took advantage of the incentives, and I because I think it's great for New York City, but I, but for New York, but I, I I think you know well besides for the tax incentives that New York gave, which they would have to because to compete to get their business, but also the opportunity zones. I'm just thinking, you know, that's uh, another big advantage, and yeah. I wonder how people really. I mean, like the average person really probably can't get involved with this because it's too big a thing. 
But how do people? Well, first of all, you should follow Don. I mean, I mean, really, that's you've got to educate yourself to things, even if you think. And everyone thinks, well, it could never happen to me. I don't have enough money. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm just a small person. I'm working every day. And it kind of, if that's how everyone thought, no one would ever get anywhere. So you, you kind of have to make yourself knowledgeable, and if nothing else, know what's going on. So, how do you suggest somebody goes about? Even learning about this or getting involved with it, or you said so you were starting to talk about small businesses and women-owned businesses. What What are your thoughts on that? Don, can you question? Don, can you open a candy store in an opportunity zone? Does it have to be a major business? No, it doesn't have to be a major business. It, it has to have a certain small amount of qualified, uh, um, qualified employees, but not many. Um, because the idea is to generate large, mid-sized, and small businesses in each of those districts. Okay, and, but- uh, and it allows those districts to compete for um, you know, businesses to locate in them. So, that, so it's, it's meant to cross all kind of uh, scales of businesses. All right, but before um, the break, yeah. you had started. Before the break, you had started to talk about how you think certain people can go about this. Like, if you're a business, well, I, think, I think the Amazon deal for for a moment is is illustrative of of what the challenges are about attracting businesses, say, for New York City. So, Amazon split their employees. To, they were they were for headquarters two. They were placing fifty thousand employees in a, another jurisdiction, another city or state around the country to uh, house their second headquarters. So they ultimately um, selected Crystal City, Virginia, and Long Island City, New York, and then they put five thousand employees into Nashville, Tennessee. So uh, New York gave an, an incentive package of approximately three billion dollars of tax incentives and so forth to get Amazon's 25,000 employees. Crystal City, Virginia, um, gave um, uh, Amazon about $500 million for their 25,000 employees. And, the, and, and it was an earnout. for example. There had to be certain economic benefits, such as jobs and taxes and other revenue, generated to the state of Virginia in order for Amazon to receive the full $500 million. Well, that seems like a smarter and, deal than what we did then. I mean, that yeah, seems yeah. like much smarter because there was a lot of controversy about, you know, I know there's been a lot of controversy about whether we gave them too much or not too much. What happened here in New York, Don? Why was it so well, different? Be, go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. No, I was saying, what? Why? Why? Why did we get it taken in the neck? And and well, you know, because we because they because in New York that's what they decided to do. Doesn't mean it was smart or not smart. Okay, they you know when you're bidding for something, you know you don't, you know. I mean, the other ones made a better deal. I know. So what? what no, okay. it, I mean, what it is is that New York because of of the perpetuation of of you know, certain cost, et cetera, in New York. In order, it took to to get to an equal playing field. It took New York City an extra two and a half billion dollars to get to a level playing field with Virginia in terms of the cost of doing business. Um, yeah. That's the challenge. And then it also took being in an opportunity zone um, to further get to that level playing field. So basically, it's the cost of doing business, and that so that so when you look at that for Amazon and you see these big numbers. It's the it's the same thing 
just on a smaller scale for someone to start a small business in New York City. And so Governor Cuomo tried to, for example, with the Startup New York, um, to do it, to get development activities in upstate. The, the focus um, that needs to happen is how do we make an environment more conducive for small businesses to start and to grow and operate? And that's a challenge in New York. And that's where I think these opportunity zones can have a big impact. Because if you want to start a small business in New York and you need a, a place to put your business, either in retail, a retail space or office space or industrial space, I mean, the cost it's of your privileged. space is going to be so significant. Right. So, right. And then your employee cost with all the other taxes and, and, and costs are associated with it. It makes it a much more capital intensive business. And that's why we're seeing New York trail many other states um, and um, around the country in terms of uh, small business startups. And so I believe that the opportunity zones, and if the state and city can follow up with some other incentives, can create a better environment. And so that's where I think the, the hidden value here and where people, who, the, your listeners should be thinking of, is this is not just a real estate um, incentive, uh, the opportunity zones. It's a, it's a business incentive in district. And so they ought to be looking to start their businesses in these opportunity zones around New York State. They're everywhere. They're on Long Island. They're in Westchester. Okay. I mean, so they're you, everywhere. You, you don't have to own the real estate. You can find an opportunity zone and put a business there. All right? Is that what you're saying? So you don't have to necessarily own That's the real right, estate. That's right, You can be a tenant um, and, 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 and space. You just have to headquarter. You have to locate your business in that district. And all, and then you get your, the business that's located in that district gets all of the opportunity zone incentives, which are listed on the website. And there's a lot of been a lot of reading, a lot of writing about this information on the opportunity zones because, as you pointed out earlier, they've been very hard to figure out. And the government's been, you know, involved making these regulations and and modifying them as it goes along as they've been getting feedback. Um, you know, but you know, this has been this has been being discussed. The Opportunity Zones first started uh, getting some traction um, when, uh, in the second term of Obama's administration, um, where Senator Tim, Tim Scott of uh, South Carolina um, was one of the people um, trying to move that along. And it took it only happened in the Trump administration as part of the uh, tax reform uh, that took place uh, last year. You know, I, 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 I don't want to say the word flabbergasted. Maybe that's kind of too strong. But I'm sitting here, and I told you I first heard about it maybe nine or ten months ago. And uh, I thought, well, and I am very pro, really pro-entrepreneurship, pro-small businesses, pro-women, pro-minorities. It's just, And it, it's not like one against the other. It's kind of just make equal opportunities for all. And sometimes I think it's very difficult for, to, for someone to get started. And I don't, I'm just trying to think of how does somebody, <coughs> because the average person doesn't even know it exists. Where would they go? Who would counsel them? <coughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, I think that's a challenge. And, and, and I mean, I want to be able to be a little bit more versed because I get a lot of questions on everything, especially in business, uh, not necessarily real estate only. Uh, everyone wants to know about real estate, but as far as business, gee, you know, and I don't think it's right for everyone. I don't think being an entrepreneur is the right move for everybody. But there's so many people trying 
And uh, we would just say, well, first of all, they should follow you, Don Peoples, okay? And then go and go on the internet and, and really do research. I don't know really who offers advice on this. You? you know, I think one of the things um, that an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur should do, which is what I do and continue to do, is read about other businesses and read about other people who are successful. I mean, there is no set roadmap to success. I mean, your story, Dottie, has been inspirational. I mean, I've read many of Stephen's books. They are inspirational and informative. I mean, I read about Don, everybody. hold that thought. And if you, if you have a little time... I really would love you to just stay on and finish what you're doing because we don't often get that opportunity with you, okay? If you have a few more minutes, if you could just wait for the break. Sure. Thanks, because you're just phenomenal, and I want everyone to be able to get as much of you as you can. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. We're here with Don Peebles, and I've asked him to stay until the end of the show, and I appreciate him giving us his time because it's not very often, okay, that you can get to someone who is smart as him, and you should follow Don Peebles. Uh, I do, Ace does. Uh, Let me ask you, while we, we talked about opportunity zones, and of course you can't cover this in, in 45 minutes, so you have to look further, but what are your views on affordable housing when land values are so high? Well, I think that one, we have to decide that, and the governments have to decide that they're, very, that they're going to be serious about supporting affordable housing. And what I mean by that, for example, I mean, they're competing interests, and so in every issue that we confront on the political perspective or business perspective, they're always going to be competing interests. And so in this particular instance of affordable housing, the, the cities and the, sta- the, city and the, the cities and the states need to make it a priority. So let's take New York State, for example. Um, obviously, another priority is fair wages and prevailing wages and so forth. But to build affordable housing and get any um, state subsidy for building affordable housing to offset this high cost of land and high cost of construction, you get incentives. Well, in order to get them, um, those projects have to not only be built with prevailing wage, but they have to be built union. That drives the cost up about 30 percent. So, I mean, I think that there I mean, if there's any way they'll give way, you know, private sector can build non-union and most many instances with these luxury condos they're built non-union um and so they're getting to do that why wouldn't we have some flexibility or the unions give some flexibility on um some of the work rules and and and, uh for uh, building affordable housing so that the money goes further two i think that the city and the state if they're serious they should take some of the land that they own and they should designate it for affordable housing, but they can't make it so that there's one level of affordable housing. They can't build low-income housing. It needs to be, the biggest need in New York is workforce. So moderate to middle-income housing, workforce housing, that's where the investment needs to be made because those are tenants that actually can pay rent and pay to live in the buildings, and they're going to uh, continue to be able to get, the goal is to get them to live closer to where they work so we can relieve some of the gridlock and traffic and the environmental um, impact of having so many commuters and the strain that it has on our public um, you know, transportation system. 
So, I mean, but they've got to be serious to where they're going to subsidize the cost of land or take government-owned property and prioritize that for affordable housing. And then to come up with a land use um, policy that incentivizes affordable housing on site with market rate housing by, say, doubling the density of a, of a site if they're willing to build affordable housing. And so, and, it may, and, it, and of that increase of the density, half of it goes to affordable housing, half can go to market, so that that increased market rate housing can subsidize affordable housing and so you can have the private sector doing it. But it needs to be a much more aggressive approach. But the problem is, right now, is that there's this adversarial relationship between the Democratic politicians of New York City and, and, and in some degree New York State and the private sector, where we're all in it together and it doesn't, I mean, there doesn't need to be this adversarial class warfare perspective. I mean, most entrepreneurs are like you and me, Dottie, where we built our businesses right. from the ground up. And you know something, I, uh, what, what happens is uh, the land cost is so high. And I also think, think that they really went about it right. I mean, I, I would speak about it because I think there was a negative connotation to it because... And I also think that I am a big proponent that the guy, you don't want to make an incentive for someone not to work. And I would look at people who were working people who were doing their best to try to make a living, take care of their kids, give them an education. And people that didn't work got less, got more. They got no benefits because they just... You know, made like maybe eighty or ninety thousand, made for, for for a family of four or five. So, this person had no incentive. I mean, they, if they if they didn't work at all, they probably would have had more incentives. So, I absolutely am with you on that. That we've got to let that working class person be able to. And I don't know where you go to get that to change. I know um, we try. But I think that has to be an overhaul. And I think I said in the beginning of the show, I am so sick of the politics because it becomes not about anything that's good for anybody. It just becomes politics. And I think it's time. It's over. And we have to start to do what's good for the people going forward. And I do think that I I, I think as, as the people are, are, are you know, the, the millennials and the generation, I think they're a little bit more socially conscious about things. Uh, so yeah, what, is your, hopefully, what is your suggestion? What can we do in the interim? How can people help? What can they do? Well, I think, that, I mean, there needs to be a, I mean, this idea, this rhetorical way of governing and addressing issues doesn't work because it just leads to more, more rhetorical um, debate and, and, and conflict. What the public needs to do is expect results. And I think the one thing that we need to do is we do have a we have an, a housing and affordable housing crisis that has now bled into so many other elements of our of, of our way of life. I mean, New York City, um, which is an economic engine for our state and the region, uh, the cost of living is you and can. the cost of housing takes up more than half of a person's salary. That forces them to live further. They've got to commute to where they can afford to live. And so the people are commuting an hour, two hours mm-hmm. each way a day. I know um, someone who's commuting to, from, from, work. from Pennsylvania to get to New York. 
And you know what oh, people yeah, don't, don't know is if you don't have a workforce, you could have the best business in the world, but you have to have people. And I remember when B was well and B Smith first opened and I opened in the Hamptons around the same time. So we were both kind of new. And uh, I had a reservation and it was like, 10 o'clock, and when I got there, they said they're not serving. And I was like, what do you mean? I came all the way from... And they said, well, Dan said to me, well, Dottie, he said the truth is, and he didn't know me, I didn't know him, we became friendly, I would be afterwards. He said, we had no help. We can't afford to be the people that would work for us, can't afford to live here, so uh, we had to rather close and give bad meals. So I think it's a real big problem, because you need that workforce, and where are they going to live? Right, and that's a business challenge as much as it is a, uh, a governmental challenge and a life and a human challenge is quality of life. How do we how do we make it effective for people to live better? By the way, imagine the free time if people could cut their commute down from you know three hours round trip to. 20 minutes round trip or a half an hour round trip. They'd have more productivity time, better quality of life. And then also when it's the inclement weather, businesses could continue to take the place and you would take away this burden or reduce the burden on the public transportation system that is costing us billions of dollars of lost opportunity and billions of dollars of impact that where we are having to invest in the system. Yeah, the whole transport and the and the traffic and the cars. I mean, it's like almost impossible. It could take hours to get here, and then I tell people it can take hours to get across the city. I mean, it's it is a problem. And you know something? What ha- and I I so enjoyed listening to your okay. And I always, as I said, want to say, look, maybe you can't change the world, but we can make a difference. I'm trying to figure out, and I have. Like how we, because we're, you know, I did in the beginning of the show, some of the states that are losing people, one of them was New York. And it's because of the the cost. I mean, I think California was another one. Um, because of the cost. And so then you find people leaving to go to other states because they can't afford to live here. So I. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't you're know. right, Dottie. New York State went from the third largest state in the country to now the fourth largest because Florida usurped it. Exactly. Because people find it's easier to live there. It's less expensive, the cost of living. The tax situation is much better. So um, I guess it's a combination of things. There's not just one answer. Um, There's not just one person. And I'm trying to think of how our audience, because I always like to can at least be active and write to, you know, your congressional leaders and people like that. I know that they have certain times lotteries and here and there. But again, if the land is too expensive and the cost of doing it is too expensive, you, no one's going to do it. And that's really what I think's happened here. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that they, I think Dottie, so, one of the other thing, what your reader, what your audience, your listeners can do. What is, can they do? I mean, they, what has happened is that um, New York State and New York City have had a way of doing business that's gone on for, you know, 100 plus it. years. And, and they've got to change and reprioritize. So it's time. What, what worked 50 years ago doesn't work today. And we're a much more competitive and global economy and, and society. And we're a glo- we, we have to compete with other states. 
um, around the country for businesses and residents and workforce. And, and New York is at a point where people are leaving because they cannot afford to be here I know. and they cannot ever get ahead. So what's happening is that those who are mobile are leaving. So Dan, let me say this. First of all, I'm there if you ever need me for any cause or anything like that. And we're gonna file, please, I'm gonna put up all your details and you can follow Dan and please, we will talk more about this. And I can't thank you enough. This has probably been one of the, my best shows because I've learned so much listening to you. Love you, and thank you for giving us your time. It really means a lot. Thank you, Don. Thank you for having me. Have a great weekend. And uh, I guess we'll be, well, not I guess. We will definitely be back next week. I'm just blown away, and I don't usually get blown away, but he was just a wealth of information. And maybe next week we'll follow up on some of that. You know, because it's a lot of information to absorb all at once. Eye on Real Estate with Dottie Herman is sponsored by Citizens Bank N.A. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.